Welcome to episode 15 of the Dollars and Doctor Show. I'm your host, Gurthej Varn, founder and financial planner at White Coat Financial. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Harbir Sian. Dr. Sian is an optometrist, the owner of two clinics, and he was named the 2016 Young Optometrist of the Year by the BC Doctors of Optometry. He's also an entrepreneur, a keynote speaker at optometry conferences around North America, a TEDx speaker, and the host of Canada's number one optometry podcast called the 2020 Podcast. He is a true ambassador for the optometry profession, and I'm delighted to have him as a guest. So without further ado, let's dive into episode 15. I know you've been on podcasts before, and honestly, anyone who Googles you should go and listen to your story on other platforms, but thank you. in case they don't, and they're just listening here, could you give me some background as to, you know, where you grew up, your time at SFU, and then going all the way to New England, and then even why you chose optometry in the first place? So really just the makings of Dr. Sian. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to share it. So, oh, and also I apologize for my voice just in case you do put it out there. I, I'm going to try my best to make sure it's as clear as possible. But uh, no, you sound great. You sound great. Speaking, speaking too much, obviously. But um, as far as, okay, so undergrad, uh, well, if I can rewind the clock just a little bit further, 94, we moved to Canada from the UK. We I grew up in London. Um, and so, you know, went to high school here and in Vancouver, David Thompson, go Trojans. Mm. Um and then went to SFU for undergrad and I did kinesiology there. University was like, undergrad was a very much a, like me kind of coming out of my shell type of time for me. Um, and I have a lot of people to thank for that, starting with my um, big brother, my cousin, who I call my big brother, Gurge. Um, because when I got there, he had just graduated a few years earlier, but he'd left a huge mark on like the people who were in between. He graduated in 97. I started in 2000. But the people who are there towards the end of his time, and then they happen to overlap with the beginning of my time, you know, they're four or five years at university sort of overlap. I showed up to SFU and people were like, hey, that's Gurge's cousin. That's Gurge's cousin. I was being called Gurge's cousin. In fact, I was even called, be called uh, my nickname was GC for a little while because the people didn't know my name. I was just Gurge's cousin. Um, and like, I forget that story sometimes, but I think it's so important because um that those people then kind of took me under their wing like oh you're Gurge's cousin cool hang out with us and not like oh you're like protected like Gurge wasn't some like badass guy he just like was super like social butterfly everybody loved him and so I went there and they're like well if, if you're his cousin then you're our friend and then I started getting involved in like the Punjabi Student Association there because of those people because of Gurge because Gurge and his friends back in the mid 90s they started this Punjabi Student Association at SFU and so then I got involved in it and that's really where like I got to become get comfortable just talking to groups of people and eventually being on stage. We would do a culture show every year and sell out Massey Theater in New West, um, you know, thousand to twelve hundred people. And I'd be on stage doing skits or just presenting or opening the show, um, you know, and making we would make a movie every year, 30, 40 minute movie on whatever topic. We just make a movie entertaining comedy usually. Um, and so I got comfortable with being on the camera and how to edit movies. And that's where all of that stuff happened. So really, really formative years. Um, I can say as far as on the educational side, I've never been a good student, mostly just because I'm lazy and I procrastinate. Um, and so I was the same way in undergrad and I would just cram at the end just enough to get by. And uh, ultimately came to like my third year of university and I was just sort of getting by first two years I think I honestly I barely was above academic probation I was like 2.0 GPA pretty much and that was typical of me like just doing enough to stay in school <laughs> right and then like I get to my end of my second year beginning of third year and I was like okay well look I probably 
should do something, um, figure out, I've always wanted to be in the medical profession of some sort, like, let's figure out what exactly that's going to look like. I'd like to make a decent living in the future. Um, you know, I don't want just to have a degree for the sake of having a degree. So I started volunteering at different places. I started um, observing and I even started working at an optometry clinic and I observed with a physiotherapist and a medical doctor and a pharmacist, dentist, and optometrist. And ultimately, um, the optometrist was the one that I kind of felt the most comfortable. That setting is the one I felt the most comfortable in. You know, it was pretty much stress-free for the most part. They were making a decent living. They didn't take stress home with them. In the exam room, one doctor in particular, Dr. Amrit Pawa, who I, I don't even know if he knows this, but I refer to him as like the godfather. If you see him, you'd you understand why too, right? But he was, uh, he, his office was Oak Ridge Optometry in Oak Ridge Mall, super busy. And yet when I would sit in the exam room with him, he'd be so chill mm -hmm. and talking to his patients in like, it was like they were just having a conversation, yeah. like as friends. But at the same time, he was doing an eye exam and he was making cool references to like, you know, Van Gogh or, or some yeah. like musical reference or something like, and how it relates to vision. And it's like, this is so cool. I'm like, this guy is so worldly. and calm and um you know and these patients obviously love him so that was where essentially the decision was made um and you know he took the time to sit and chat with me so that was the time it was a, it was a calculated decision right I, I was like you know looking at my gpa looking at like where i would have to if i have to move away where would i have to move to what would the profession look like my career look like would i love it would i be comfortable i'm not a very type a person although it depends who you talk to they might tell you differently yeah. but for the most part i'm not a very type a person i'm pretty chill and so I didn't have that type A personality of becoming like a doctor, a surgeon, that type of thing. Although, you know, I'm, I probably would have loved it. I think what I'll, I'll maybe say later is you basically you make what you want of your career, right? So I could have been a dentist or a doctor and I still think I would have done some fun stuff around it because a lot of the stuff I enjoy with optometry is not necessarily in the exam room. It's all the other stuff that I'm doing. So that you can do with any career pretty much. But in any case, the, the decision was a calculated one. Uh, to go to optometry after that my third and fourth year and like I did like four and a half year degree or whatever it took me to, to finish but that last two and a half years I did well and my GPA came up but you know it's interesting thing so then I started looking around to optometry schools to apply to and you look at like I'm applying to optometry school and they'll say on their website or their applications they'll say minimum requirement for a GPA is like 3.3 or something like that and mine wasn't, mine was 3.1 something or 3.2. It was, it was like 3.2 and everybody needed 3.3 or higher for the most part. Some were saying 3.5. Either way, I didn't hit anybody's minimum requirement when it came to the GPA. Mm -hmm. And I had, a, I kind of thought like, do I even want to apply? Mm -hmm. But I did. Um, and I applied, I did my OATs, I did well on those. And then I, I was invited to the three schools I, I applied to, I was invited to interview with, and I got into two of them. The third one, I didn't even go to the interview with that third one, Chicago. So I got into, um, Pacific university in Oregon and I got accepted to new England college of optometry. And, and once I got that ac acceptance in Boston, I, I just called Chicago and said, I'm not coming. <laughs> and just because I loved Boston so much. I'm sure, again, I would have loved Chicago so much too, but something about Boston just in, immediately like um, resonated with me. So I, I stayed there. But like, I don't, I don't say that to like, to sound like I'm trying to impress anybody, but it was like, what's the saying Ed Milet says, I'm not saying this to impress you. I'm saying this to impress upon you the importance of like continuing to move forward with what your goal is or your target is. Even if somebody says you don't actually have the requirements necessary, 
right? And so the G, my GPA, and and even when I applied to Oregon, when I went down there for my interview, the lady, she was walking us around campus and she goes, um, you know, uh, and without saying that she was saying this to me, I was like, she she said it, implying it. She said, well, you know, some candidates, we we still take their application and we accept them. You know, people who are kind of outside of our acceptance, whatever, we still accept them because, you know, we just want to see how they would do and perhaps they might still succeed. I'm like, well, I appreciate that. I'm one of those people. I know that. Um, and I, I have a feeling I will excel once I'm in your program. And and so, you know, they, they did, did accept me. But um, that's kind of the point of that story is like, even if you feel like you're on the on the fence or on the edge or maybe even be behind or not at that cutoff even, it's still worth trying um, because there may be something else in your in your application that's that stands out, right? Maybe you do well on the OAT. Perhaps you're a well-rounded candidate. Perhaps you're something else that you can bring to the table, right? I talked a lot. I'm going to talk about this more too. Sorry for kind of like blending all the things together here, but I talked a lot in my application about wanting to be an ambassador for the profession. I don't know why back then I thought I was going to be an ambassador for the profession, but something about that stood out to me back then too. But uh, Boston was awesome. Um, I'm a huge sports fan. That was one of the biggest reasons I went out there, you know, baseball, football, basketball, everything they got. And the experience of being in school there was really like, it was just, it was a really good overall experience. City was great. Um, people were great. Living in a, it's basically a huge college town. There's so many big universities there. So everywhere you go, there's students. Um, it, was, it was a fun place. So, yeah. uh, and while I was in school or when I went there, my goal was always to come straight back to Vancouver. So there was no in between. It was like, as soon as I graduate, I'm back in Vancouver. In fact, I even planned my fourth year rotation such that my last rotation in my fourth year was one in Vancouver. So I could hit the ground running and be here and call and start calling people and started to get put my name in the hat for certain jobs and things while I was here ahead of the ahead of the time because I knew people were going to start doing that after they graduated. I started doing it in like March, April of that year, you know, when I was able to meet people in person because I was already in Vancouver. So uh, that was always the, the goal for me. Yeah, I, I love that story because obviously I've heard it a few times, but I, I love it because I didn't know that your GPA was under the threshold. I always thought you were right on the margins or, or above it, but I didn't know that it was under. And I'm, I really do wish that universities put more emphasis on things other than just the grades. Cause yeah. I know lots of people who had part-time jobs while they're in, you know, undergrad, cause maybe they have to help out at home. Mm-hmm. And that didn't mean that they were not as smart. They just didn't have as much time to study as maybe the next kid, or maybe they had responsibilities at home. Mm-hmm. And I think I really wish they put an emphasis on their why. Like if you wanted to be an ambassador for the profession, no one who just wants to be an optometrist because their mom or dad told them to would want to be an ambassador. Right. So I, I wish that those things were more heavily weighed um, for a lot of professions. And I, I'm not sure if they are right now or not, but it, your story really goes to show that, yeah, if you are just on the margins, but if you have a passion for something, maybe you just need to be in the right environment to thrive. Maybe yeah, SFU yeah. was a little too fun. You had too many friends. You, were, you had too many uh older guys to hang out with and go and party with versus you being amongst other optometrists at an echo just really fueled that, that optometrist that was, that was being born during those times. But, but that experience in undergrad around those people and that, and I didn't, you know, for the most part undergrad, I didn't drink. I didn't really party hard or anything like that. It was just, um, I was just enjoying the social setting mm-hmm. in general. I was, like I said, coming out of my shells, really enjoying that all of a sudden, I even had, um, I would run into people I went to high school with like two, three years later when I was in undergrad and they'd be like, whoa, you're a different person now. 
Um, and I thought that I was like super reserved in high school. I had friends in like different circles and stuff, but like I was an extrovert all of a sudden in undergrad. And um, but that was like I said, it was formative in so many ways. And in fact, it was part of the reason why I think I got accepted into optometry school is because I had all these other things that I did, the Punjabi Student Association and putting on the culture shows and learning how to like run an organization, essentially, which which it was. Um, you know, that that all played a huge role. And, um, you know, they do look at those other things. I think the problem is that they to give them a little bit of credit, the, the universities and such, they have to put out something that's standardized to like at least have some kind of an outline of who they want to accept. Now, sometimes they rely on them too much and some people don't fit that mold. Um, and others, it seems like are more flexible. I think optometry schools are a bit more flexible, um, maybe compared to some other like medical schools and other things like that, um, they do like to see kind of the well-rounded person. And they do like to ask, you know, when I've done some reference letters for some students and they do ask like, why is this person going to be good for the profession? Not just like, why is it this person going to get A's and B's in, in, in optometry school? Um, and so, you know, they want to hear those stories too. I didn't know that when I was applying, but I know that now. And so that worked to my advantage. It's a really cool story. I also think like, you don't think about it while you're doing things. And right. I think it was Steve Jobs who said it, that you can't connect the dots going forward, only backwards. Right. But you were doing all this, we'll call it multimedia sort of stuff. You were dipping your hands into, you know, speaking and creating content and, and you know, managing people, so to speak, and running events. And you probably made a lot of connections during that time as well with, you know, the local community. And it's mm. funny how that's come back like full circle where you are making, you know, media now and you're speaking at events and i'm sure the people that you spoke with you know that you were just rubbing shoulders with in those student associations are now lifelong relationships in business as clients you name it right and so it's really cool how all of it sort of just does come back full circle if i would argue you do things that you're passionate about and you have fun doing 100 percent. what i can't yeah there's nothing in there i could disagree with there it, it and it all comes down to doing the things that you're you're passionate about and that kind of align with who you want to be and you know what you want to spend your time doing for sure and i didn't know any of that uh you're right it's about connecting the dots looking back i didn't know when i was doing it back in the early 2000s that this is something that i was going to love doing in the future but because i had the experience doing it you know um it allowed me to kind of tap into that now and yeah it's, it's my favorite thing absolutely so i guess fast forwarding you finish school you graduate you're here in bc and you knew you wanted to start a practice right away but could you walk me through what your the early days of you being an associate look like up to the point where you started your first practice um and then if it's not too much to, to front load what would you say was difficult about that time but what are you also grateful for from that time i really 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 enjoyed those first few years of my practice i worked a lot um like there were stretches where I remember I did pretty much, I worked 30 days straight. I worked at least four hours. Like I did a short shift perhaps on a Sunday somewhere in there too. But like, but like pretty much it was um, 30 days straight. I went in and I saw patients more than 30 anyways. And I'd done that a few times in that few first few years, but I enjoyed it. It was, life was so carefree for me, like working, making money, just in uh, like, cause I'd, was single you know not married no kids no nothing just go to work um come home go to go work out go hang out with friends just like so I look back on those years very very fondly but figuring out how I wanted to practice and where I wanted to practice that was kind of the the challenge for me like I 
I didn't know where I'd really fit in. And I ended up actually practicing mostly, almost exclusively in like a lens crafters side-by-side setting as an associate. And then that led me to my first opportunity in 2013 to have my own uh, practice, which was a new lens crafter store that just opened up having the side-by-side store, the office there. But for, during those first few years, I would work anywhere and everywhere. If somebody asked me to, uh, my answer was always yes, unless I was already working somewhere else. But like I was I was driving literally across the entire lower mainland in Fraser Valley. I was going as far as um, from West Vancouver all the way to Chilliwack in the same week. Um, you know, and in fact, even sometimes on the same day, I'd be in North Van, until like three o'clock and then go to metro town from like four to eight p.m that same day but just because i, I wanted to make money and i wanted to you know well i was like what, what else am i going to do you know i have one very specific skill set and uh i'm going to just maximize it uh, so that was really what the first few years looked like for me um and then when we started so i have a business partner uh dr harley and techar and so when we 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 went to high school and undergrad together but we went to different optometry schools but when we graduated optometry school, we're kind of like, let's just very loose, like verbal agreement of like, let's just see if an opportunity comes up where we might be able to go in on it together. And um, so we kind of stayed you know, in touch, kept looking for opportunities. And this lens crafters one came around and she's very uh, organized, very diligent. Um, I am not those things. Uh, I'm very action oriented and like big picture, like how can I put all these things into place and what steps do I need to take just small steps now to kind of build towards those, whether it's having a phone call, a conversation or buying a piece of equipment or whatever, but like with us together, I think we put, we, we have a good team, but um, that was part of the reason when we started that business, I was like, I think we could work well together here. You can kind of help me organize the back end, which I'm not particularly good at. And I'll be excited to kind of help like just put things into action so we had that sublease in 2013. I still work, Harleen and I both still worked as associates in other practices for a few more years. Um, it was in 2017 when we opened uh, Clarity Eye Care, which is a private practice um, that we both uh, quit all our other jobs and then just went into two, our two businesses full time. Um, and that was, that was when the financial struggles really started um, was then um, like just challenges of like actually understanding my finances or getting trying to understand them better prior to that again I was just working I didn't have a family and so on um, so so those first few years as, as an associate were pretty easy yeah it was it was when I when we opened our, our second practice that same week so uh, my daughter just turned six this week uh, it's next week technically is a six-year anniversary of clarity we opened a week after my daughter was born um, so there's a lot happening all at the same time. Um, and so that, of course, came some very interesting challenges. Uh, but the associate life was, I don't know, I don't want to say easy, but it was. It was different, a- more carefree, way more carefree. Yeah. Less responsibility, I would assume. Yeah. No, no wife to come home to no, no children. And so you could put in those hours without really yeah. you know, worrying about. I don't even need to be home. Plus, it's really nice that you expressed that how hard you worked because we're going to come back to this later. But if you look at you today, you're like, oh, you just must come easy to him. He's this charismatic guy and all these things. But I think with new grads in any field of healthcare, you graduate school, you've done all this education, but it is still scary seeing your first patient on your own. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
you really have to get those reps in to be comfortable. There's no way around it. You've got to get your reps in. That's the only way you'll see a lot of situations, feel comfortable with the patient sitting across the chair from you. And you did that seven days a week for a long time. And again, this might come across as bad as being, you know, like overworking and it's toxic that you were doing that. But I think if you enjoy doing it, why not? Yep. Um, if it's really just going to elevate that patient care on the back end, it's good for society as a whole. I oh, yeah, I agree. And I, I there was, I don't remember, um, maybe there were times, I do not remember a time where I felt burnt out, mm-hmm. or overworked. Um, optometry is not a physically demanding job. And, you know, if you're mostly, which I was working mostly sort of routine patient care, you know, primary practice type of stuff. Yes, you get you get some crazy things and you do see some some big things for sure on a fairly regular basis. But like, again, you kind of know how to deal, especially once you have have some put your reps in. Yeah, let's say I cut, somebody comes in and they have a huge retinal detachment. They're about to go blind. Well, in, in the early days, the first few years or whatever months of my career, I might have stressed and be like, oh, no, how am I going to what's going to happen? But once you've seen it a couple of times, you know what you're going to do with that. Um, and even if it's something as crazy as like that ends up being like a brain tumor or something, again, you know what you're doing and what the steps are. And, you know, Ray Dalio says it's just another one of those things, right? You just know how to deal with that now because you've seen it before. And that then so there's like very little stress. You're just kind of going to work. You're doing your thing. You're being a good doctor and you get to kind of enjoy your life still. There's a, a good amount of balance. But when you start throwing family and other obligations and other things into the mix, that's where maybe then the idea of burnout and stuff comes in because then you're like, you got to work if you're trying to work a ton and you're not spending time in other places and you don't feel aligned that's when you start feeling burnt out but back then i was i was chilling it was easy so um i don't think i ever felt burnout i don't think i would ever say there's anything toxic about it i worked that much because i really wanted to not because i had to um you know and somebody else might say i can't work more than four days a week because whatever reason that's fine that's your Mm -hmm. It's your need. And then you just make sure you're, you align with that. In some ways now, someone might say I'm a bit of a workaholic, but I don't still don't think so. Um, I see other people working very, very hard. Um, I think the term workaholic maybe has a negative connotation in the sense that it probably means it's unhealthy what you're doing and the amount you're working. And I still feel that the amount that I'm working is still healthy and I don't feel burnout and stress no matter you know what amount of work I might have on my plate, I just kind of have learned how to manage those times. And of course, having a very strong relationship at home with my wife has been extremely helpful too. What I wanted to say, going, going back to the amount that I worked, I think it's important, like you said, to put the reps in. And I feel like sometimes people coming out of school right away are saying, no, I only want to work four or five days a week and only Monday to Friday and only nine to five. And in my opinion, that's the wrong approach. In fact, in the beginning, you should be like, give me the most scattered and varied schedule that you can give me and give me as many days as you can, because that's how you learn all the different variations of your profession, work in as many different settings as you can. uh, And that's how you're going to learn to then cope with the potential burnout and and fatigue and stuff that may happen later in life. But also you'll find better opportunities. Maybe you do prefer working three to eight or two to nine or whatever, instead of nine to five. And of course, Saturdays are always going to be the most lucrative days, no matter, you know, which type of setting you work in. So if you don't want to work those, you know, you're missing out on financial opportunities if that's what is important to you. So I just think in the beginning, it's important for uh, younger ODs to really take those opportunities and work as much as they can, see as many patients as they can, um, because it's going to pay off for them later on uh, and in different ways and maybe in ways that you don't even realize. 
I completely agree because there's obviously the financial benefit of doing that and getting those reps in, getting those student loans paid down. But even for yourself, working that much set you up to be in a position, you know, start your own practice. You have yeah. to have that nest egg or that stability a little bit before you go and pay for a practice because it's extremely expensive. There's a lot of uncertainty. So there's that benefit. But there's also the benefit of, like you said, getting your feet wet in different cities and different hours, different types of patients. And it really helps inform you as a young OD of what do I want to do in the future? And this, this applies honestly to every discipline. If you're a physician yeah. or a dentist or, you know, a different type of healthcare worker, it, it helps you inform your decision of what do I really want to do in the future or what's important to me, especially when you start to have a family. If you desire to have that, you need to only work on the things that you want to work on at that point, but you need those reps in at the start. Um, and I think even to your point of, of working a lot and not getting burnt out, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you love your profession. Um, and coming back to what you said earlier, and you're today absolutely an ambassador for the profession. But when you started out, do you know now in hindsight why you wanted to be an ambassador? Where did that come from? I really don't know, to be honest with you. I wrote it on my um, application, like essays and stuff. I remember distinctly writing that. Um, you know, I'm not sure why, and I don't know... Like, I'm, I've never really thought to myself to be an ambassador for anything prior to going to optometry school. And even in optometry school, I don't know what what it was about it that I, I felt like I got to go home and, like, shout this from, like, the rooftops, right? But, oh, actually, you know what's so funny? Every time somebody asks me this question, I don't understand. I've been practicing for 13 years now. And I always forget this story until I'm in the middle of answering the question where I'm like, oh, I don't know why. And they're like, oh, Yeah. Sorry, I'm doing this with you too. Um, the number of times I've told this story or answered that question. So there was one, if there was one distinct moment where I think it became clear to me that I needed to become an ambassador, um, I was already doing stuff at this point. I was already writing blogs and things like that. Um, but what happened was, no, it was the other way around. I wasn't writing blogs yet because this happened while I was still finishing my fourth year rotation. Sorry, clearly getting old and senile here. Um in, in my fourth year rotation, that last clinical rotation that I was doing in Vancouver before I graduated and officially started working as an optometrist, that April or something, 2010, there was a big deregulation that happened that was forced by clearly, clearly contacts at the time. They were selling contacts and glasses online um, without validating people's prescriptions, which technically was illegal. Um, in every province and every straight state across North America, it's a law to have required, you have to get validated, you have to validate the prescription with an optometrist or an ophthalmologist before you can dispense glasses or contacts to a patient. Uh, clearly was just sending them, patients would just go in and say, I'm minus five, and they would send minus five contacts to people. And it was against the law. So they went to court, opticians took them to court, and um, the judge says, yeah, the opticians are right. This is a law, clearly you have to stop doing what you're doing. Or you can go get the law changed if you really don't like it. So they took the second option and they lobbied and they paid off some government officials, people in, in, in government in power at the time. And um, Kevin Falcon was the um, health minister, provincial health minister. And he, um, you know, within about a year of that happening, that was in 2009 and in 2010, first half of 2010, they decided to deregulate all of these eyewear and eye care like related sales. So, and they said it was in the interest of, it was in the public interest of, they did this, like, um, you know, allowing the public to make the choice of where they want and how they want to buy their contacts and glasses. 
which just boggles my mind coming from the health minister to think that um, an actual classified medical device, a contact lens that you stick on your eyeball, you're saying that it's in the public's best interest to go ahead and just buy it without any knowledge of how or how that lens is going to fit your eye or what the material is or how much oxygen passes through it. You know, um, with, you don't need the public to know any of that information before they stick a piece of plastic on their eyeball, let alone know what prescription if, if is the right prescription for them. So that just tells you uh, that cronyism and, and you know, there's corruption everywhere you go, even in, in places like Vancouver and in BC. Um, anyway, that happened. And so that was really the the kind of, if I was going to say there was one moment in time that really pushed me in the direction of being an ambassador for optometry, it was that. So I was really angry. I was super frustrated. I just spent all this money and four years in optometry school because I felt, felt it was going to be a really strong profession. And all of a sudden in one fell swoop, um, the whole profession is deregulated only here in BC, nowhere else, only here in BC. And uh, people are like, well, why do I have to go see an optometrist now? I can just buy my glasses and contacts without any prescription or any eye exam or anything like that. So I was really angry, but I realized being angry did me no good. So I had to find some other way to improve the outlook. And that was to me was public education. So I started writing blogs. Um, I would write these blogs like you know, one pagers. I actually enjoy writing. I didn't really realize until I started doing those blogs. I like writing kind of witty, bantery type of content. And um, I, at the same time, I would write like, what is nearsightedness? Well, let me show you what nearsightedness means. Throw in some funny references. I would talk about what cataracts mean. I would reference a Lil Wayne line from one of his songs. He says, baby boy, what does he say? You can't see me, baby boy. You got cataracts or something <laughs> like that. And so like I put that line in there. You know, I just throw little things like that together. Snoop Dogg talks about weed helping with glaucoma. You know what I mean? Like I'd make these references. I'll talk about what glaucoma is. I'll send them out to like 10 of my friends via email. But I didn't, what I didn't realize, they were then forwarding them on to other people. And then like people were like, hey, my friend wants to be like on your email list. Is that fine? I was like, what? I didn't realize that that person. So then I was gathering some people's email lists. And I realized, you know what? I should actually create like a, a blog rather than just making a weekly email. Let me make a blog. So I created the website aboutmyeyes.com and I would write a weekly blog on there, send that out to people. And that website was getting good hits. You know, I was getting thousands of hits every month or every week, uh, every time I wrote a, a blog. And then I wrote one about Trevor Linden, just kind of bashing him because he was like the spokesperson for Clearly. And that one got tons. That one got me tons of exposure. Um, and because of that blog, someone at CTV found out about me and then Manny Malhotra took a puck to the eye in, during the Canucks like playoff run and they called me because they're like oh you write blogs about eyes and you've written about hockey players so that was the first time I ever went on the news and that was my first year of coming out of school um, so I went on the news to talk about all the things that could be wrong with Manny Malhotra's eye everybody was paying attention to the Canucks that year because we were making a good push and so you know it's funny how all these things sort of just come together but I'm I apologize I'm rambling but really the the impetus for all of that was that deregulation I started writing blogs I started making YouTube videos and I really felt public education was the key for us to strengthen our profession obviously still feel that way today um but that was the kind of the real the real push I love everything about that and the more you ramble the better um cuz I'm like I said I think I said this offline I only bring on guests that I'm like genuinely interested in so I'm like this way, you know, it it's 
mostly selfish this podcast yeah, I'm talking to someone I really wanted to talk to as a, so I'm as like this is great myself, I, I'm the same I'm like who can I bring on that I can learn from and oh by the way make some content that I can put out to other absolutely. people absolutely um, but there's a couple things I wanted to talk about there number one yeah the deregulation I still think is crazy it's like the equivalent of me being like I have a headache I'm gonna go choose my own prescription drugs and then just start popping pills from whatever's on the shelf it's yeah. literally the exact same thing Right. Um, and it's still shocking to me that like it was passed in the first place and it's only done in BC. And there's a lot of stuff that you and I will never really understand about politics and what happens behind the scenes and who pays what. And Well, there, you're right that we, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. But what we do know is that uh, the next time Kevin Falcon was running, he got a massive donation from Clearly. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So we know certain things, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, that stuff's just obvious. And it's yeah. at the end of the day, it's disgusting. If you think about it, in my opinion, and I... I hope you don't get in trouble for me saying that, but yeah, it's disgusting because oh, no. this I, is people's I, I, ocular health, you know, and it affects so much and over a few bucks and some power, you're going to, you know, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go into that. The other yeah, really cool thing though, you're not going to get me in trouble because I've already, there's already written content out in the, on the internet that I've stuff that I've said that I can't not, can't be erased. So <laughs> if I haven't gotten in trouble yet, I should be okay. Yeah. No, the, the other reason what I was going to get to is. I actually spoke with Dr. Amrit Bilku about this on on last week's podcast or whenever we recorded it um, about transmuting your anger because she's someone who's also very vocal, very passionate about what she does, similar right. to yourself. Um, and at the end of the day, whatever emotion you have, it's just energy. And you have to find a way to you know use that energy effectively. And you used it in a way to transmute it from you know this anger about I set up all these plans, I want to help these people, and now I can't to the full capacity that I could before. But instead of complaining about it, you took that energy, transmuted it into something positive, like writing blogs. And look what that gave you on the back end of that. Mm-hmm. It really is alchemy. If you think about it, you took this terrible circumstance and used it to really propel your goal of being an ambassador. And in hindsight, now where you're currently at, you absolutely are an ambassador. And this leads to my next question, which is for you, you run two clinics, you have a beautiful family, you know, you Again, we can cut this out afterwards if it's not public knowledge, but you sold a successful eyewear brand. You're you're this TEDx speaker. You've done all these things. You absolutely are who you wanted to probably be when you know you were 19, 20, going into optometry school. What keeps you going today as being an ambassador? Because you could very easily sit at home, you know, earn your solid income, spend time with your family. You have three little girls. What keeps you going today to still want to be that ambassador? Um, well, I appreciate all of that. Thank you. Um, it's, it's a weird feeling, man. I, I don't think, um, I don't, I don't feel like I've done that much. So for me, um, so if a few years ago, uh, yeah, if you said those things to me a few years ago that yes, you will have sold your eyewear brand and you would have done a Ted talk, TEDx talk, and you get to go speak at all these different conferences around, um, North America and like getting paid to go do those things. Um, I would be like, great. You know, those are all things I would like to have happen in my career. And so on one hand, I'm ex- in- incredibly grateful. I feel very fortunate to have done all of those things. But the weird thing is once you've done them all, it does. It's, it's not like I, I feel dissatisfied. I feel extremely satisfied and fulfilled and content with the things that I've but it doesn't feel like I've made enough of an impact or the amount of an impact that I would like to make. Um, you just don't know when you're making those plans in your mind, you don't realize how much of an impact one thing's going to have or how little of an impact it might potentially have. You just, in your mind, you think if I do this thing, 
then I'll be good, or then I will have made it, or then I will have made a difference. Um, it's not until you've done it, you're like, oh yeah, that was a very good thing. But on the way there, you realize, you learn that there's a whole bunch of other things, right? So then you achieve that one milestone, but what, by the time you've achieved that milestone, you realize there's a whole bunch of a whole bunch more. So it takes a little bit of the feeling of like glory out of that achievement because you're like, wait a minute, there's just so much more now, right? And Nelson Mandela in his book, at the end of the book, actually he says, you know, um, he, he's reached a certain peak and he's, he's resting there for a moment because only for a moment, because from this peak, he can see all the other peaks he now has to overcome still. So like, that's pretty much it right there in that one sentence from his book is like, you get to a certain, and I hate saying it like this because it's like, I'm trying to talk as if I've accomplished so many things, but I haven't. It's, it's, it's the, the things I have accomplished when you reach those, then you realize there's bigger things that you can do, whether it's trying to make a bigger impact or it's other things you can do to make, um, be more successful in business or make more money. If you, if I'm going to be blunt about it, there's other things I can do to make more money. Um, you know, or I can be smarter the next time around when I do it, I can be, you know, invest better or save more or do it more efficiently. You just, I don't know if you do it right once you're like, how can I do it better the next time? That's just the sort of the mindset for me always. And, um, yeah, I don't know. You reach one mountaintop and you're kind of like, Oh, there's a whole bunch more still that you, you want to scale. I think that is a Tibetan saying that behind mountains are more mountains. It's something that's uh, very common and you see it in all aspects of life. Like I see it every day in my career with, with financial planning clients will say, I want to hit X amount of dollars mm -hmm. and they hit it. And I'm like, you feel better? And they're like, no, not really. And it's like, great. Cause I think a lot of people might think of that in a negative context that you set these goals, you hit them and you don't feel any better. And even for myself, it initially felt like that I'd set a goal, I'd hit it and I wouldn't feel any better. But I'm so glad I've had those experiences and I'm sure you probably feel the same because it now makes you realize that hitting the goal, this is going to sound cheesy, hitting the goal is not the goal. It's really enjoying the process and the journey. And that's what makes it fun because you, I think you almost have to do those things where you hit these goals. It doesn't feel any better. And you look back and you're like, like even you thinking back to your associateship at the time, you're probably like, I can't wait to be who you are today. But now you're looking back at like, man, those were some fun days. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the process. I liked how much I was working. And I think it's important for people to hear that coming from you, who you might not think you've accomplished a lot, but you absolutely have. Of course, you have more that you want to accomplish, but you absolutely have. But it's nice hearing that from you of, okay, even this person who's done all these things is saying that he just enjoys doing the process now yeah. and just enjoys playing the game rather than scoring the points, so to speak. 100%. 100%. Um, you know, I still like scoring the points, but it's, it is about enjoying the, pro like if you, if I was doing it, let's say, um, the TED talk was the, the the milestone that I was working to reach, but I did all these things to do it. I, I sacrificed time with family. I, I worked, you know, in a, in a, in a, if you will say like kind of in a toxic way where I worked too much and I didn't enjoy the, the time, the process it took me to get to that TED talk. Then I would have reached the TED talk and said, wow, that moment of the TED talk was incredible and fulfilling, but I did. And I realized it wasn't, this all encompassing like victory that I initially thought it might be, it was beautiful. And it had a lot of positive as like this halo effect now around a lot of stuff that I do. If I had gone and I'd done it and I had this feeling of like, sort of like not a full level of satisfaction from the Ted talk itself. Then I look back at the journey and I really dislike the journey. Then it's like a, a loss all around. Right. But if I do the journey and I love every step of it on my process to becoming a speaker and, and I love public speaking, even for free, 
in small audiences, which I've done a lot of times, by the way, I'm happy to talk a lot about that. Like I don't end up talking at like Vision Expo in New York just because like I only speak in front of big people, of big crowds. Like I've talked to kindergarten kids, elementary school kids, high school kids in like um, entre entrepreneurs, but like five people sitting in in my, you know, in somebody's store, you know, who wants to have like a little entrepreneur meeting. I've done all of those things and I loved every minute of it. Every one of those talks I love. The butterflies, I get the, the sweat that happens when I'm doing it. I love all of it. So when I do the TED Talk or I do the Vision Expo, if if I come out of that and I'm like, okay, that was good, but I want to do more. At least I know everything I did up until that point was enjoyable. I have the whole journey to look back and say, look, I love that part of it so much. Um, versus like somebody who's just grinding, grinding, grinding and hates every step and then gets to the end and then realizes that that endpoint wasn't everything they expected it to be. That's not the journey you want to be on uh, ever. So, um, you know, if you are one of those people, I think it's time to reevaluate. Um, take the time. The only way to be happy is just to be happy. Simple. Um, it's not to reach something. It's to decide right now, I'm going to just be happy right now. Mm -hmm. Make it up. That's all it is. Sounds silly. Sounds cheesy. Just decide that you're going to enjoy the thing that you're doing right now uh, or the time that you're in, the moment that you're in. And then when you look back, you have more and more of those moments and you enjoy the journey along the way. Yeah. I think that's something, I, I think it was Jay-Z who said it, but the gap between knowing and doing is so big. We feel like it's really small, but it's actually so big. And that's something I feel like I've always known that, oh, I need to enjoy the process and all that. But it took till now for me to really start actually implementing it. And I'm sure I have a long way to go. But yeah, it was only like, honestly, this year that I really started enjoying the process. And I think it's to your point of, you just have to make that decision. I think there comes a time when you, you almost have to mature into that decision because it does take time between knowing and actually doing in your life. I'm um, in the point of just you have to choose to be happy. I don't know if you've ever I know you're into stoic philosophy, but, do you know, uh, Albert Camus, he's a he's yeah. a philosopher as well. But he wrote a paper and I'll, I'll send it to you. It's yeah. called The Myth of Sisyphus. And it is the story that guides my entire life. I won't go into it now, but I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, online. But it really is just about making the choice to be happy and enjoying the process, regardless of what the outcome is going to be. Oh, I look forward to reading that. Yeah. Thank you. Shifting back to, I guess, optometry and, and, and maybe even your day-to-day your -day sort of practices, you are in a unique position where you practice in corporate as well as private. And that seems to obviously be like the, the big debate or the million-dollar question in optometry. Mm. Given that you work in both styles of practice, is there one that you prefer versus the other? Or what would you say are the pros and cons of both styles? This is a podcast in and to itself. Yeah. But um, there are pros and cons. And, you know, so um, I did this series of interviews on my podcast in the past year where I brought on leaders or from these different organizations, right? So FYI, Iris, Specsavers, Lenscrafters, all these people, plus some private practice doctors. And I asked that question to them, like, what is your organization? Which bucket does your corporation, corporate, excuse me, organization fit into corporate or private? The thing is that the corporate word tends to have a negative connotation to it, right? So a lot of people are afraid to say, yeah, we're a corporate entity, even though they clearly are, because they, they want to come off as looking like they're like a sort of a, an evolved version of a private practice. And the word that you used earlier is the key word in all of this, and that's autonomy. People think in corporate, you don't have autonomy. In private, you have full autonomy. But really, it's like a spectrum. It's like a sliding scale. It's not a black and white thing. So for example, our sublease practice with lens crafters, technically, we are independent doctors next door to a lens crafters, right? 
So LensCrafters has absolutely zero say in how I run my optometry practice. I am next door to them. We have a contract. We have an agreement because I'm technically leasing space from them and leasing equipment from them. That's their model. Um, and I pay them for that, but that's it. So I pay them rent essentially. Now, beyond that, they make no decisions on how I book people, how often I see a patient, how many, how long it takes me to see a patient, what tests I do, um, if I want to do dry eye or what type of contact lenses. They have no say in any of that. So it is fairly autonomous. There's a lot of autonomy there. Now, the understanding, of course, is that the patients are going to go next door and buy glasses. If a lot of people are just walking out the door and they never go next door, then LensCrafters is going to kind of come over and be like, anything we can do to help you transition people over to our side? That's about it. There are certain decisions I that I will do differently when it comes to recommending glasses to patients. You know, when I'm next door to LensCrafters, I will recommend the best product I can that LensCrafters offers that I think is going to be the best suited for the patient. Um, if there happens to be a product that LensCrafters does not sell that the patient truly needs, for example, uh, up until very recently, LensCrafters didn't carry any myopia management lens, uh, myopia control lenses for kids. And so I would tell a parent, if you want your kid to wear these glasses, I'm going to write the name down. You can go somewhere else. Now, LensCrafters wouldn't like that, but that's me being true to ethically correct as an optometrist, providing the patient with the best, whatever they think is the best option and telling them where they can get it. Now, LensCrafters has a lens. It's easy. I can tell them you can get that from LensCrafters. But that's where the probably the biggest difference comes is the glasses and lens recommendations I make to my patients. In my private practice, I decide which lenses we're going to sell. You know, we decide which lens we want to carry um, and which ones we think are going to be best for our patients. And you get full autonomy, of course, top to bottom to bring in every product that you want to sell. However you want to do, spend every minute of your day is totally up to you because nobody's asking you to send you pay, send the patients to you, to them next door. And the the so even in um in the LensCrafter setting, we have to do all our admin work. We have to do all our HR work. We hire our staff. We do all of that. So we control a lot more of our business compared to if you're in um, even LensCrafters in the States, for example. LensCrafters in the States, you can be employed by LensCrafters. Now you're an employee. That's a whole different ballgame. Okay. Not a position personally I would like to be in. But, um, you know, you get zero say in what you do. You just have to come and see patients. Um, but here there's no em employment. It's all, as you probably know already, you know, um, all, um, what are we? private contractors or whatever sole proprietors uh, or you can incorporate. Yeah. So there are settings, however, that will give you less autonomy, right? So some organizations will say, Oh, don't worry. We'll take the admin stuff off of your hands. We'll take the HR stuff off of your hands. And it sounds very nice. But then what that also means is you just, if you don't like the person at the front desk, you have no say in that, right? If the people who are doing your the workups for you are not good at it, you get no say in that. If um, you want to sell a certain product in the store, you have no say in that. But if you want to do dry eye testing, you have no say in that, right? If you want to offer some sort of specialty, you have no say in that. So these are all things that um, you need to determine. A person who wants to work in a certain setting needs to determine, do I want to be able to offer certain specialty services? And will this setting allow me to do it? Now, if somebody came to me in my LensCrafters office and says, Harbir, I want to do vision therapy. You mentioned Amrit Bilku, right? She's into vision therapy. If somebody wants to do vision therapy at my LensCrafters office, unfortunately, we don't have the space for that. So there's a there's a limitation there. You want to come and do that in my private practice? Let's talk about how we can make that work. Yes, please. I would love to have that because I don't do any vision therapy myself. Mm -hmm. right? So so we have some flexibility in the private practice that we might not have 
in the sublease. But when you go work in a corporate entity where you are going just to work basically plugged in as a doctor and everything around you is taken care of by the corporation, then you have zero say in what all the other things are that's happening around you. And if you want to change something, you'll likely not be able to do that. So those are things to keep in mind. Um, some people don't care. That's okay. I just want to go on and see a ton of patients and make money. Cool. Um, other people say, I want flexibility. I want to be able to expand my scope and do specialty services. Cool. Then maybe a private practice is your more, more appropriate setting for you. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I will say, you know, I really want to make sure this message is heard is whatever choice you make, make sure you understand the long-term implications of that choice on both your career and the profession as a whole. Okay. So what is your career going to look like 10 years from now? If you've had certain type of experience, you've worked in a certain type of setting. And what is the profession going to look like if a majority of people start to work in a certain setting and a certain type of scope? Is the scope of our profession going to grow? Or if, if we work in settings where we're pushing the boundaries, we're trying to add in lasers and try to add in certain techniques of you know, um, minor surgical things. Are we working to grow that scope or are we working to contract that scope? Or are we maybe, you know, what's the right word? Uh, the only thing, uh, this is maybe not the right saying here because I don't want to frame, I don't want to frame anybody as evil, but the only thing evil needs to succeed is for good people to do nothing, right? If, but to fight it, no, we don't need to use the word evil, but like yeah. the only re the only thing, the the only thing that's needed for the scope of our practice to become stagnant or even contract is for us to do nothing yeah. for us as optometrists to sit around and be like, I'm just going to do the easy thing. The only way it's going to grow is for all of us to be working towards it, right? We have to work. It takes more effort, but we have to do it. It has to be kind of this concerted effort by the group as a whole. Unfortunately, I'm seeing a little bit of a trend towards a bit more of a selfish perspective um, in that, like, I just need what I need right now. I understand you got to pay bills and stuff, but I see a bit of a trend towards, I just want to do what's comfortable for me. I just want to do what I feel like, why I came into this profession. Um, but unfortunately the profession is going to start to decline if that's what everybody is thinking. Um, so I'm going to say whatever mode of practice you choose, just keep in mind that we're, the goal is always to make sure our profession is growing and, and expanding. I appreciate that answer. Cause I know that's a mammoth of a question to answer and whatever you did two minutes that you answered it in. Um, I will put your podcast in all of the show notes. Cause I think you've had multiple episodes where you've talked about this. You've talked about it from different perspectives. So your podcast is the place to go to, cause it really is one of the biggest questions in optometry, mm -hmm. but I think you answered that perfectly because there is no right or wrong. I would say that most questions in life period are never a or B it's sort right. of a blend of both. Um, and I think, they have their space or their place in it, but it really comes down to autonomy. And what you ended that question with is, is this good for you career wise? And is it good for the, the, you know, industry as a whole? And you're into philosophy a lot. And so am I, my favorite sort of lens to look at things is through, um, if everyone acted this way, how would that benefit the world? And I think optometrists could apply that line of thinking directly to this is if everyone did nothing, or if everyone just stopped caring about the profession and only cared about themselves, what would that do for everyone? Um, and it applies, to, I'm sure there's some holes in it, but it applies to things like voting. If you know you decide I'm not gonna vote, but what if everyone thought like that? Well, then no one would vote and it'd be a terrible situation. This is a very similar situation of a, what if no one decided to do anything because it was too much work or it was inconvenient? What would that do to the profession and how would that affect me You know, 10 years from now? So. Um, 
I absolutely love your answer on that one. Thank you. I, I actually love what you just said there. Sorry if I'm going to, if I can just piggyback on that a little bit, but that, that's, that's a really a succinct way of putting it is what if everybody did it this way? Um, what if everybody worked in a setting where the value of the eye exam was lowered? Um, the, the public perception of our eye exam, the service that we have been trained for four years to provide is lowered in the eye of the public because we charge less or we don't give enough, um, just put enough value onto the services that we're about to provide. But if everybody was doing that, what if the corporation, um, if everybody worked for the corporation that went to insurance companies and said, you don't need to um, cover that much for eye exams because we could pretty much do it for free or go to tell the government that you don't need to increase MSP um, reimbursements for doctors because whatever, we can just kind of cover the cost of that. What if everybody did that? then ultimately our profession would be completely devalued, right? Mm -hmm. The government would see no value in it. They would see no reason to continue to increase MSP billings and reimbursements, which we have a team of people at our association grinding diligently, hard working to push government to continue to increase that MSP reimbursement. I think, and I'm, I'm going a little bit, getting a bit aggressive on this, I know, but I think it's a slap in the face. And I think it's disrespectful to those people who are busting their butts trying to increase the MSP reimbursements, pushing the government, telling them that you should pay doctors more. And on the other side of it, we will have potentially organizations telling the government, don't worry about it. You don't need to pay us that much. We'll just charge less for the eye exam, <laughs> right? So in my opinion, people who, if everybody was to work for an organization like that, what would happen to the profession? I think that's a good way of looking at it. Absolutely. I guess to like succinctly do it, it wasn't coming to my mind, but it's, can you universalize your actions? There's one question that you already sort of answered of, I was going to ask, what should new optometrists do to avoid being commoditized in a lot of ways? But I really do think you've answered that in the last question, which is speaking up, you know, sort of banding together and making sure that you're uplifting the, the profession as a whole. So okay. if you don't mind, I'd like to skip over that. Well, um, can I add one more thing to that if you wanted to quickly? Okay, if you want, we can go back into that. The key, the key thing, if I was to answer the question, like what, what can we do to, to prevent becoming commoditized yeah. is right now, um, I think there's a huge value in us making sure we're practicing to our full scope, right? We're trained in treating glaucoma, we're trained in treating dry eye and all these other things, doing those things, right? Making sure you're doing those extra tests that require a little bit of extra skill. Also implementing things like vision therapy, specialty contact lens options, Try eye services, myopia management, doing those things that patients will see that there's there's a lot of extra value to come and see their eye care provider, their optometrist versus just a routine eye exam because the routine eye exam is becoming commoditized. So doing those other things is where you avoid that commoditization. Doing those additional value adds that you are capable and trained for doing and making sure you're implementing those really to, at the end of the day, wow, that patient. Yep. Oh, you can help with, with all of these other things instead of just making it a, a eye exam, yep. right? It's like, it's, it's very similar, I guess, if you were to put it in mechanic terms, to make it very uh, universalized, this, this example is instead of just doing oil changes, you should be able to do everything on that car front to back. The oil change might just be what brings people in, but you're going to help with servicing that entire car. Very similar to this is the eye exam is what brings um, them in, but I'm going to take care of their entire ocular health. Right. You can do that, or you can take it to a different level and specialize in something very unique right so uh you only do a certain type of car or you can do certain type of changes or, or whatever mechanical things that um very few people can do right then you become the specialist and that that's 
kind of the key thing right now is to, we're not allowed to call ourselves specialists, but becoming specialized in a certain area, um, that's where the value is. Absolutely. Um, I guess what I'll do then is for the sake of time is I have a standard three questions that I ask all of our, our guests. Um, the first one is, and I'm sure there'll be many, but who would you say is one of your biggest inspirations? Uh, somebody I know or just somebody in general? This could be micro, yeah, someone you know, or this could be on a on a macro level that someone, you know, like Nelson Mandela that you've never met. Yeah, actually, Nelson Mandela is probably one of them. Um, Richard Branson um, is definitely one, is probably the top on that list. Um, and his book is often actually my number one book recommendation is Richard Branson's biography. Um, Nelson Mandela definitely being another one another inspiration you know it's so silly because I'm sure if I thought about it for about two minutes I'd come up with like a whole list of people but right now off the top of my head struggling to come up with a name I have a book back here maybe that I can reference yeah you know I think those people I think just like those two people Nelson Mandela and Richard Branson probably were the two like um, I think about them often almost pretty much daily um, Richard Branson in that sort of his entrepreneurial sort of eccentric personality and then nelson mandela and his like immense like patience and like how how he sacrificed himself for so many years for the greater good um definitely those types those types of lessons that i learned from reading his book um is the reason why i would consider him a an inspirational person yeah can't go wrong with those two honestly amazing men amazing stories so yeah um Next question is, what's next for you personally as Harbier and then professionally as Dr. Sian? Always just looking for new things to do. Professionally, uh, you know, I want to keep just educating in every way I can, uh, whether it's to my colleagues or to the public. Um, we're always working on growing the business, the practices, and, you know, maybe, you know, if things go well, maybe opening another location down the road. And then personally, really just trying to spend as much time as I can with the family. So trying to balance those things of trying to grow the business and spend more time at home. Um, you know, a big goal of mine would, I would love to take six months or a year off from clinic and just take my family away somewhere. You know what I mean? Go live in Europe for six months or something. I'm putting it out there into the universe. So let's see if I can bring this, make it happen. But that would be, that would be one of those moments, you know, that Five years ago, I had these ideas in my head of like, if I do a TED talk or if I do this, I'll have made it. I've done those things. I'm like, ah, oh, there's more stuff. Now in my mind, I'm like, if I could take my family to Europe for six months and not have to see patients and homeschool my kids, then I will have made it, right? But, um, you know, that that's kind of like, I'd love to, to achieve something like that. I don't know what Wait. that, uh, I assume I'd have to talk to my certified financial planner to figure out exactly how I'd get to that goal. But, uh, you know, it's something I'd love to achieve. Well, you've, you've manifested your TED talk. Um, I know you wanted to do it and then you end up doing it. This could be one of those exact moments because you very well could just end up having speaking gigs in Europe. Um, and then that pays for the trip and the sabbatical for the, you know, six months off where you can homeschool right. girls. So who knows how it actually end up working out. And it'll be cool if we could timestamp this and, you know, however long it takes you to get there, it'd be awesome. Um, and because this is the dollars and doctor show, um, if you're comfortable sharing, what would you say is the worst financial decision you've ever made in your career so far? And then on the flip side, what would you say has been the best financial decision that you've ever made? The worst? Betting on the Canucks to win the Stanley Cup? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, that was, that was a mistake. But so, I mean, I have a couple things, um, different levels, like on a smaller scale, um, not budgeting, private contractor. Um, you know, I don't pay taxes off of my paychecks, right? I got to pay them at the end of the year. And so 
uh, first couple of years, just making the mistake of not budgeting to have enough money in the bank or not just budgeting for the amount of tax we'd have to pay at the end of the year. And then all of a sudden be like, oh, no, where am I going to make sure I have enough cash to first couple of years was a bit like that. Um, and it wasn't because I was spending all my money. I was saving it, too. But I just wasn't like thinking about how much money I was going to have saved on the side uh, for that. But, um, you know, when I started my eyewear brand, that's probably the biggest mistake that was when I started my eyewear brand. I, I got too excited and I didn't budget well and I spent too much money up front. And then all of a sudden I'm like, now I'm like scraping by just making sure I got enough to, you know, until the revenue starts building up. And that was stressful. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in both scenarios, just not learning how to budget um, well, I think was probably the biggest mistake. Um, and then um, on the other side of it, uh, I've been fortunate to have people around me who have encouraged me to make sound uh, investments. And so early, as early on as I could, when I had enough of a nest egg, um, investing in some real estate um, was was very valuable. So it's not like I've converted that into money, but having the the equity is, has will I imagine be quite helpful over the years. So doing that as early as I could in my career was was great. You're not alone on the budgeting. That's something everyone struggles with is you realize you, every dollar you earn, it's like at least 33 cents is going to the government and you just don't budget for it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I had these savings and now I don't because CRA is going to decide to take them. Yeah. So you're not alone in that aspect. Um, and I guess to to end off our, our interview, um, what advice or final words would you have for, you know, any doctors out there, regardless of their discipline? It doesn't have to just be optometrists. Um, is there any words of wisdom you have for them or, or helpful advice that you might think is good just for healthcare as a whole? Um, I think that the the overarching theme on this conversation, a lot of it has been like being an ambassador for your profession. I think that is is key. Don't think of it as just if you can make your job more than just what you do in the exam room, I think you'll be happier. Right. So if you have other interests, like I was saying earlier, I love like creating video content and editing that. If you can somehow tie that into your work, if you love speaking like I do, tie that into your work. If you like drawing, if you're a painter, somehow tie that into your work. Whatever you can do, um, blend your hobbies and your work together so that it makes everything just more enjoyable. Um, and then when you're enjoying it more, you're likely to speak better of it and more highly of it and um, just have better energy. Just have good energy around your patients and, and your colleagues. I love that. I, I really do because I think you wouldn't face as much burnout. It would improve patient care and it leads to opportunities that you know, you probably couldn't foresee even coming. So yeah. I love that answer. Um, and on that note, I know you have to get going. So thank you so much. And there you have it. Episode 15 of the Dollars and Doctor show. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to Dr. Sian for being a guest and taking the time to record this episode. I first met Dr. Sian three or four years ago, and he's been someone I've considered a role model ever since. Despite his impressive resume, he's one of the most humble doctors I've ever met. And he's done so much for optometry in addition to being an entrepreneur, a husband, a brother, and most importantly, a father. He's someone I've looked up to for a long time, and so it was an honor to have him on today's episode. If you want to reach out to Dr. Sian, I'll include his social media links as well as the link to his podcast in the show notes of this episode. This episode was brought to you by White Coat Financial. Our goal at White Coat Financial is to change the financial planning industry by combining a fiduciary duty with a one-stop shop experience for our clients. 
If you're a Canadian doctor and you're looking for financial advice on mortgages, investing, insurance, taxes, or any other financial matters, visit our website, www.whitecoatfinancial.ca. On our website, you'll be able to schedule a free initial consultation to learn about how White Coat Financial can help you protect your income, grow your money, and live better. If you have any questions or feedback for us, you can email me directly at gurthage at whitecoatfinancial.ca. Thank you for your attention, thank you for your time, and thank you for your ongoing support. I look forward to speaking with you soon. The information contained in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and it is not to be taken as financial advice. While the host of this podcast is a registered financial planner, nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as financial advice. Before making any financial decisions, you should always consult with a financial professional about your unique circumstances and personal situation. The hosts and guests of this podcast are not responsible for any errors or omissions or for any actions taken based on the information provided in this podcast. It is the responsibility of the listener to do their own due diligence and make informed financial decisions.